Today, the psalm of the day is going to be Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast to the unchangeable truth of your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You'll continue at this time with the readings from Holy Scripture. Good morning. Our Old Testament reading for today is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle reading for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel from this Sunday is taken from St. John, the second chapter, beginning at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, 
What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word of God and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of our Lord. We ask you to be seated at this time. We'd like to invite. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. As we just mentioned in the children's sermon, the text today is going to be taken from the reading in the Gospel of John. Let's go ahead and begin with the word of prayer. Almighty Father, we give you thanks that you have sent us Jesus to cleanse us from all our sin. And today, Lord, as we, we remember what Christ did when he came to the temple, we pray that you would point us to Jesus alone for our hope and our salvation. We pray that to say that you would grant us your Holy Spirit so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a new trend, I don't know if you've seen this, among the environmental activists uh, who are looking to protest the overuse of oil in our world. Maybe you've read about this. And, And what these protesters will do is they will go to a museum and they'll find these beautiful pieces of art and then they will, they will deface the pieces of art in order to draw attention to themselves and to their cause. So the one I was reading about uh, not too long ago was a group who did this in, in London. They found uh, Vincent van Gogh's painting called The Sunflowers, beautiful painting. And they took cans of soup and they threw it all over the painting so that you'll stop using oil. I don't always follow the logic myself, but there it is. They're, they're drawing attention to themselves by defacing these beautiful pieces of art. Now, we can discuss and debate some other time the virtues and the values, or lack thereof, in such forms of protest. But what I want you to think about today, as we get into uh, the Gospel reading, I want you to think about what those protesters are actually doing, kind of the mechanics of what they're doing. They're defacing something beautiful in order to draw attention to themselves. Okay, they're defacing something beautiful in order to draw attention to themselves. And on first glance, as we come to our reading from the Gospel today, it kind of looks like Jesus is doing the same thing. Like he walks into that temple, that temple which was beautiful. You remember that conversation Jesus has with his disciples one day? They come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, look at these buildings. Isn't this temple glorious? This place is amazing. This was a beautiful temple in, in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jesus walks in one day and just starts turning over tables, flipping things on their head. Who does this guy think he is coming in to kind of make a mess of the whole place? Before we answer that question, what I want to do for us this morning is is give you a little bit of background about the temple and, and what its function was and how the Israelites viewed this place and why what Jesus did would have been really so utterly shocking to them. So the history of the temple kind of goes like this. If you go to the Old Testament, you will find that there are a variety of ways in which God chooses to dwell among his people. The first way we see is in something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this huge, glorious tent that the Israelites bring with them through the wilderness as they make their way to the promised land. 
This is to be the place where the priests would offer up sacrifices, where they would bring forth God's Word, uh, where prayers would be received, and all of these sort of wonderful things. If you're bored this afternoon, you can read Leviticus to learn all about this. And you will not be bored anymore. All right? So you have this. Now they have that tabernacle from the time of Moses all the way until the time of Solomon, the, the son of David. Now Solomon is given the commission to build God a permanent house. No longer are they going to meet in this mobile tent. Uh, the new temple is going to be solidified. It's going to be uh, permanent in this one place in Jerusalem. And so Solomon builds this temple. And God makes this promise to the Israelites. He says, this will be my dwelling place. I choose to stay here. When you pray towards the temple, you will know I'm hearing your prayers. Here I will receive your sacrifices, and from this place, my word will go forth. However, if you break my laws and you violate my covenants, then I will remove myself from this temple, and you will be punished by another nation coming in and drawing you off into exile. Well, sure enough, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's exactly what happens. Israel, the Israelites violate God's law. They break the covenant. And so God removes His presence from the temple and the Babylonians come in and they take the Israelites into exile and they destroy the temple. You guys all awake still so far? Very good, because there is a quiz at the end. All right. So now you've got this temple destroyed and for 70 years, there's no temple in Jerusalem. But the Israelites finally get to go back to the land. The Lord, after 70 years, brings them out of Babylon, puts them back in the land, and they build what is known as the second temple. And they call it the second temple because it came after the first one. So they have the second temple there in Jerusalem, and this is the temple that is around when Jesus shows up. And again, it's this beautiful place, this place of God's presence, this place of God's worship, this place where sacrifices are offered and the word is proclaimed. It's this glorious building. And Jesus shows up and starts destroying it, in a sense. Turning over the tables, driving out the people selling sacrifices, making a huge scene, and drawing all this attention to himself. I mean, who does this guy think he is to walk into the temple and do this? Is he throwing soup all over God's Van Gogh? Who does this guy think he is? Well, that's actually the question you need to ask. Because when you think about it, He's the God who the temple was built to worship. Of course he's going into the temple to turn over tables to draw attention to himself. The temple was built to draw attention to him. For he is the God of Israel in human flesh. And everything that was going on in the temple that day that Jesus was upset about was doing the opposite of what it was supposed to do. It was drawing all the attention away from God and turning God's house of worship, God's house of prayer, into a marketplace. The money changers were taking this beautiful building of God's and using it for their own purposes, their own selfish gain. They were the ones, not Jesus, they were the ones defacing the temple. It was those Jews who had turned God's house of worship into a means of greed and gain. God had given them this beautiful building and they made it all about themselves. Their trade in the temple courts was the soup on the Van Gogh. And that's what Jesus was upset about. They were abusing the wonderful gift of God. And, it's, and it strikes me today that not only what they were doing there, not only was what they were doing there in the temple sinful, it's also a perfect picture for us today of what sin actually is. 
sin is the taking of God's good and true and beautiful things in creation. These gifts of God, this, this created life that God has given to us out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit of our own. He's given it to us to be used and enjoyed in faith and in love. It's taking these beautiful things that God has given to us and using them for our own selfish purposes and our own self-serving pleasures for our own selfish gain. And I think that's helpful for us to think about uh, as we come today to the Old Testament reading and the reading from the Psalms. So we're going to be like weaving in all the texts today except for 1 Corinthians because I couldn't figure out how to work it in. But we're going to weave it all in here today to see how all this kind of ties together, I hope. So what we have here in the Ten Commandments, and really first with Psalm 19, is the author of the Psalm, I believe that one is from David, telling us that look, this whole creation is a beautiful gift of God. And when it's working according to his design, it's going to be great. Things will be beautiful. Here in Psalm 19, uh, we read about the glory of God's law. And when we talk about the law, I don't want you to think about rules of do's and don'ts. That's not all we're talking about here. Not just lists of what you can and can't do as, as a follower of Jesus. But to be sure, the Ten Commandments are a list of do's and don'ts. But when we refer to the law, we're talking about something far broader than the law is God's will for his creation. It's how he's designed things to work. It, it, it's sort of uh, the purpose and design and the ordering of his creation. And when the creation works according to God's design, when it's working according to his order, it is beautiful. It is good. I love the way the psalm starts talking about the rising and the setting of the sun. How it talks about when the, the sun runs its course, it does so with joy. When the creation is working according to God's design, it's joy-filled, it's beautiful, it's delightful. It's the same for you and I. When we live our lives according to God's law, when we're doing the things God created us to do, our lives are beautiful and joyful, and it's good. Listen to how the psalmist describes it today. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, when God gives us his will and he places us in this creation and we follow uh, his design, it's true and good and beautiful. It's a delight. And so then he gives us the Ten Commandments to kind of lay out for us what that actually looks like. In the Ten Commandments, he shows you that you were designed to worship him. You weren't designed to worship multiple gods. You were designed to worship him alone and to take time out of your week to worship him and to speak of him faithfully and lovingly with prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. He then shows you how to conduct yourself in the world, loving your neighbors, not harming them, honoring the authorities above you, not disrespecting them, fighting hard to keep good marriages, to be working well for the property of people around you, and to be thankful for the things that God has given you without slandering other people or trying to take things from them. But when we violate those laws, that's when we start throwing soup on the Picasso or on the Van Gogh or whichever painting I referenced at the beginning. When we start to see people speaking ill of God, worshiping different gods, 
ignoring the gathering of the saints for worship. When we start to see people undermine authorities or harm people in body or reputation, when we start to see people slander and gossip, be filled with lust, adultery, greed, and following all of their insatiable desires. This is what sin is. It's soup on the beautiful Van Gogh of God's creation. Taking what is good and given as a gift and either abusing it by disobeying it, ignoring it, slandering it, abusing the law, throwing the soup on the Van Gogh that way, or, in another way of saying it, is using the law to draw attention to ourselves, to make it all about me. The law is given so we honor God and love our neighbor, but we, what we tend to do with the law is we tend to take it and say, now, look how righteous I am, because I'm so good at following this, which is just the funniest thing to think when you read the law. Uh, it shows you how you're falling short, but what we tend to do with the law is we say, look how bad they are. Look how they're falling short. Look how they can't live up to God's standards. I thank you, God, that I'm not like those sinners over there. I'm righteous because I'm obeying your law perfectly. And we make the law all about us to draw selfish attention to ourselves. And so that we then stand before God and say, I'm righteous because I'm doing it all the right way. I'm doing everything you said. I'm living according to your design. And God's like, you haven't even considered what the law expects of you. And suddenly, the law shows us how unrighteous we are. But we try and prove our righteousness to God, and we try and prove our righteousness to each other by obeying the law better than everyone else. And it just it never works. You can't do it. You're throwing soup on the Van Gogh. God didn't give you the law to tell you how to become righteous. He was simply describing what righteousness is and showing you how he designed you to live. And what we end up realizing when we take the law seriously is that none of us add up. We all fall short. And in all of this, we sin. We're like the money changers in the temple who are abusing God's gifts for selfish gain. We're abusing it for our own selfish purposes. And Jesus won't have it. So Jesus shows up that day in the temple and he starts turning over all the tables. He starts turning over all the tables so he can put things back to the way they are supposed to be. And this is what he needs to do in our lives. When we come to him with our righteousness and our pride and all of our selfishness and when we show up in front of him with all of our sins and all the things we've done wrong, Jesus needs to take these things and turn them over and, and take them away from us and teach us to trust something else. Because what we see is when it comes to what is going on here in the text, the damage that is done is so deep, extreme measures are necessary. What the Jews are doing there in the temple is so problematic, and the temple at this point is so misunderstood and so misused that Jesus just has to kind of undo the whole thing. It's kind of like this. Imagine the Van Gogh, going back to our opening illustration, imagine the Van Gogh is... is uh, uh, not covered with glass. I think they said when they threw the soup on the Van Gogh, it was covered with glass so that it was protected. Uh, but let's just imagine for the sake of uh, the illustration today uh, that it wasn't, that it was an open canvas. And you throw the soup on the Van Gogh and what happens? The soup seeps into the canvas. And suddenly, you, you can't get that soup off. You can't clean it. It goes in and it corrupts it completely. So what you would have to do to fix it is frankly, just go find Vincent Van Gogh and have him rise from the dead and paint you a new one to replace the old one. Turns out, nobody did that. 
you can't do that these days. Vincent van Gogh, I don't know if you heard this about him, he's not alive anymore. And so you can't have him come along and replace the old with the new. The artist is no longer available to fix it. Well, here's where our analogy breaks down. Because when Jesus shows up, he's the grand artist. He's the one who's put this whole thing together. And in fact, he's the one who knows how to get the soup out of the canvas. But here's what he's going to do. He's going to tell the Jews that day that you've abused this so much that I need to take this away from you so that I can take matters into my own hands and make things right on my own. He says, I'm going to take the old thing that you have ruined and I'm going to replace it with something better. I'm going to give you something better than what you had before. So he said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? And he was speaking to them about the temple of his body. So Jesus comes and it's basically like Jesus is essentially saying this. This thing, this temple system, is completely corrupted beyond repair. Here was the purpose of it. To get you to the coming Messiah. Well, now that I've arrived, you don't need it anymore. And besides, you've completely ruined it and destroyed it and defaced it. So I'm going to get rid of this whole thing. And I'm going to replace it with something better. Myself. So crucify me. I will die. You can put my body in the ground. But three days later, I will rise. And I will bring you back to a place where you will finally have God in your presence through faithful worship. What's more, in that dying, I'm going to take away not only the corruption of the temple here, but I'm going to take away the corruption of you. I'm going to take away your sin. And I'm going to pay for it with my blood. And you who are sinners will fully be forgiven, says Jesus, by my sacrifice. And what's more, I'll take the law away from you. Not in the sense that you shouldn't worship God or love your neighbor anymore, but I'm going to take it away from you as a means to righteousness because you can't do it anyways. And it's foolish to try. So I'm going to take the law away from you. I'm going to fulfill it perfectly on your behalf. And then I'm going to give you all the credit for it. Because you see, I am your Savior, says Jesus. I am your righteousness. Oh, we did bring the First Corinthians passage in there. I am your righteousness. I am your sanctification. I am the one who has come to take away the old and replace it now with the new. And this is what Jesus Christ has come to do for you. To do the restoration work that this whole world needs. He's begun that work in His death and His resurrection, and He alone takes that which is corrupted and corroded by sin in this world and does the miraculous work of removing the stain and making all things new. He started it for you in His death and His resurrection and you will see him bring it to completion on that day when he returns and he puts this beautiful piece of art, this creation, back to the way it's supposed to be. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son, Jesus, to make all things right. And we pray this day, O Lord, that you would keep our faith ever in you, teach us to trust you fully, and follow you into everlasting life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.